From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today is a first for our podcast as we are joined in person by today's guest, MJ Albacetti, a native Cantonian who spent his entire professional career with the Canton Museum of Art, including serving as executive director for over 25 years. An arts educator equally versed in the visual and performing arts, he teaches classes on the history of art and architecture at Kent State Stark, has given pre-concert lectures both here at the Canton Symphony and at the Cleveland Orchestra, and hosts our online Music History with MJ series. He is a lifelong patron of the Canton Symphony and has been a loyal subscriber for over 45 years. MJ Albacetti, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. It is a pleasure being here with the two of you. This is going to be very exciting. <laughs> yeah, this is very exciting. So we both know you pretty well, mm -hmm. um, but can you just introduce yourselves? Tell us a little bit more. I know we had that awesome introduction from Matthew, but if you can just tell us a little bit about who you are so our listeners who maybe don't know you well, can get to know you. In specific to music. <laughs> Uh, I would have to say that I came by classical music when I was in high school, and uh, in our generation, we were listening to Patti Page, Nat King Cole, mm -hmm. uh, Eddie Fisher, people like that, and I was I loved it. And then all of a sudden, somebody came on the scene by the name of Bill Haley and the Comets, mm. and he destroyed music. Uh, <laughs> 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 he, he went into rock and roll, and all my friends went for it. I didn't. I was lost. I was an outsider. And uh, a, a kid in band, uh, we were talk, comparing notes about this, and he said, well, if you don't like that, that music, how about concert music or classical music? And in band, we play pieces. He named the 1812 Overture. I had no idea what it was. I went out and bought the LP, which was interesting because I didn't own a phonograph. And the darn records were 12 inches. You know, the 45s were like this. And uh, so I had to get a job, and <laughs> that introduced me to a career working for money. <laughs> and uh, I listened to it, and I but the thing I loved about that particular recording is that it had the complete 1812 with all the sound effects that Tchaikovsky had indicated, cannon fire bells. On the flip side was another piece by Tchaikovsky, the Capriccio Italien, which was another thing, and there was a lecture by Deems Taylor. And right away, I liked the sound of lecturing on music, so I just got bitten by that. And I started to, to develop a, a collection of uh, records, just buying stuff. We were talking earlier, Matthew, about uh, Mahler, that my first experience with Mahler was uh, the Resurrection Symphony, which I hated. until uh, I bought it because the cover was real beautiful. 
Uh, that's what I bought a lot of things. But uh, when I got the job at the uh, art museum, which was in the cultural center, it had a the offices of the symphony. It had the Players Guild. It had the um, uh, the Canton Ballet came a little later, and there was the Choral Society, now Voci. And uh, I stuck my nose in all of those offices. In fact, got thrown out of more than... Linda Morehouse, who was the first director, threw me out of her office one time. She said, you're always over here bugging us. Get out of here. <laughs> but, but when I asked her uh, if I might do a pre-concert lecture for the Canton Symphony, she said, fine, go ahead, pick one. And I had the first choice of the entire program. So I always managed each year after that to get the program as soon as possible because I thought it was better to talk about a piece that you knew about rather than having to do research. And uh, that started the whole thing and the long association. But, uh, and so it went. So. so what was your first... You were introduced to classical music in high school. When was the first time you went to the Canton Symphony? I, I would have to say when I was at Timken High School, back in the day when I was at, uh, at Timken High School. Uh, which I think, of course, would be before Gerhardt. Uh, but uh, this was alien territory for, territory for me in the sense that uh, um, I, I loved the music, but I never thought I'd have any close association with these wonderful people on stage who lived in a world of their own. I was in a very different world at the time. Um, but uh, as time went on and I, I got to know Linda Morehouse and we became very good friends. Uh, and... Um, Having the having access all the time to the Canton Symphony uh, was a wonderful experience, and uh, it, it's been part of my life. Yeah, we've had the same seats too. Really, Amstutt, all this. Where's time. your seats? Uh, it's it's L twenty one twenty two, I think, something wow. like that. Pretty I don't, close to the front. Oh, and uh, keyboard. Uh, yeah, on the house yeah. left. House, house left. Yeah, house left. Yeah, house there left. you go. So as this, you're not our typical podcast guest. I uh, guess not. <laughs> as because I mean, the, you, the mission of the podcast is to uh, give voice to underrepresented or uh, marginalized communities, uh, which you typically don't fall into that category. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that that's entirely true because um, my uh, interests in music are very diversified, mm -hmm. particularly from the concert angle. Like I just did a lecture on uh, African-American composers. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say African-American black composers because it included people from uh, mm -hmm. France and uh, England. Yeah. Um, I am very uh, involved or concerned with the ethnic communities in town. Mm -hmm. And I have some very strong feelings about uh, the, the ethnicity and, and the representation of, of these groups. So I have something to say about oh, yeah. those. Yeah. Well, it's interesting coming from the perspective, you know, usually we have people on the podcast who are people of color or, right. you know, and you're coming at, at, from the perspective of what people would assume is the typical concert goer of a symphony, mm -hmm. right? The industry, and you've kind of, you've already alluded to this, has been going through a big change, especially recently mm -hmm. um with you know much more attention being brought to uh black lives matter movements and racial injustices here in america um and that has started to be reflected in not just symphonies but in lots of different types mm -hmm. of organizations um so i'm wondering from your perspective which you've kind of given us a glimpse already of someone who is kind of what is typical of the symphony not what we're you know trying to strive to be more diverse. What is your opinion of what's been happening over the past few years and how do you feel about all these changes? You mean specific to the Canton Symphony or in general with the Canton guess, I guess both, maybe in general and then maybe what's hap been happening here at mm. the symphony recently. 
Well, I, I've sensed for some time now that the, the orchestras have been striving to find ways of reaching broader markets, uh, the, the community out there. Uh, you know, they refer to the United States as the big melting pot. That was always the theme of the melting pot. The issue with the melting pot is that it has melted and it has you know, just blended in. So when you go into some of the ethnic communities and you try to focus on their ethnicity uh, and where it has gone, uh, it's generally very remote from them. Uh, they have not kept up. For instance, specific to the Spanish community that I grew up with, um, uh, all the children who came from Spanish parents overseas coming over here, um, now they're having their own children, and what they know about Spain or the or Mexico or South America has been soaked out of them. They're they, uh, students. I, I love student names because there are so many ethnic names, and I often stop them and say, "What does your name mean? Where does your name come from?" It's this unique pronunciation, and they think I'm kind of challenging them in some way because of you know so many prejudices. These are not prejudices. These are means of, of finding out what's in their heads. But I find by the time that they're like second or third generation, they know very little, if anything, about uh, their uh, ethnic backgrounds. I can, I can speak to this directly from experience. Mm -hmm. My father's first language was Polish, uh -huh. and I feel essentially no connection whatsoever to my Polish heritage. We, I was just raised like any mm -hmm. other American. And other than eating pierogies and yeah. blintzes on Christmas <laughs> Eve, I have very little connection to it. And what did, uh, what do you in general know about Polish composers or uh, Polish life? I can name two Polish composers, okay. one famous and one not, and uh -huh. uh, that's about it. Yeah. Well, um, my father, who was a, a, a workman, uh, an immigrant, and uh, yet he knew who Andres Segovia was, the great Spanish guitarist. There's a story about that. Um, he knew Manuel de Falla. He used to talk about Manuel de Falla. Did you know that Manuel de Falla wrote an opera that nobody knows where it is? It's hidden away somewhere. What's he talking about? And years later, after my father's death, I read about they found this opera by uh, Manuel de Falla, La Atlantida, which was left incomplete. And I think uh, Ernesto Halter or somebody else completed it. And it, it, it was not great Manuel de Falla, but it was recorded and you can get a copy of it. But uh, th that he knew these things as a worker. My mother came from a Czech background. Both her, her parents were born in Czechoslovakia. Um, and uh, the discovery of Smetana and Dvorak that she must have known about was another inspiration to get into that. She had nine children, and none of them knew the name Dvorak or Smetana. Uh, how can that? They knew Polka. They knew Frankie Yankovic and Polka Varieties and Sunday Afternoon, but they did, they knew nothing about this other realm of music. Uh, and that's what I mean about dissolving away uh, from the melting pot. Uh, several uh, families of um, uh, uh, tradition, uh, the uh, the Greek community. Uh, remains very, very strong to their ties. They, they get all the kids, to le they learn to dance, they have the music, etc. Uh, many of them speak the language. Uh, the Italian community, the Italian festival, uh, that has diminished quite a bit in, in uh, recent years. Uh, how can we bring that back to them? I had even thought of the idea in terms of what the orchestra can do. 
Um, what about uh, a, a concert dedicated entirely to S- Spanish music some night? Uh, and by that I mean uh, music written by Spanish composers, uh, Spanish music, and maybe a couple of things that would uh, directly appeal to them. Because uh, there's some phenomenal music and very appealing to the public, if they, uh, to the Spanish community, if they would hear it. And they love to get together for things like that, tied in with a Spanish festival or something like that. And I think you, you'd get some good representation there. You know, a night of Spanish music, a night of Italian music, something mm-hmm. like that. I think, I think it's interesting talking about like immigration in America and then cultures of people who are either children of immigrants or immigrants mm-hmm. themselves. Um, I, you know, um, my, my immigrant great grandfather, so it's a little, it's far removed from me from Germany, but from friends that I've talked to who are first generation Americans, um, often, and again, this is a generalization and I'm not of this population, so take it with a grain of salt, but, um, often talk about how when they come to America, their parents or themselves often feel such a pressure just to assimilate into American culture and to, you know, only speak English because people will not treat you well if you have an accent or Mm -hmm. if you, you know, all these different stuff. So it's, it's the question of how do we, um, encourage people to keep their traditions and Mm -hmm. to be proud of their heritages because right now kind of as an American society, we're like, Hey, you have an accent, figure Mm -hmm. that out. And it's like, "Uh, well, maybe we should, they speak more languages than most of us do. So you know, it's interesting. Uh, Can I tell you something I did one time? Mm -hmm. Uh, When we had the kimono show and all the activities that we went to, there were Japanese, there were Japanese interpreters and the Japanese who spoke English. But there were hardly, I didn't know anybody that was American specific or English that could say a word in, in Japanese. So when I had to make my intro to this big assembly in the right in great, the great court, I determined to learn about four or five minutes of a Japanese speech. And uh, I gave a brief presentation in English, and then I had my notes all written up phonetically, mm-hmm. and I read about a three-minute, four-minute speech entirely in Japanese. I was a nervous wreck doing it, and when I left the uh, dais, um, I, I was in a cloud. I, uh, I don't know. And I said to my wife afterwards, how did the audience respond to that? She said, you got a standing ovation. It led to p- complications because everybody thought I spoke Japanese. <laughs> oh, and, no. And, I, and I, I did not. <laughs> oh, and, and there were interesting ramifications to that. But how important that was to me and how important it should be to other people to jump the bridge, uh, to uh, explore other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're so uh, disinclined to do that. And, and uh, I think that's most unfortunate. Yeah. And it should be in the schools that they're encouraged to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. It's, yeah, I think it, it, it begs the question, like in orchestral music, how a lot of people assume that orchestral music comes from one specific type of background, a Mm -hmm. usually European um, background, but there are orchestral composers from every single background and that music has influenced and continues to influence orchestral music. So it is our duty as orchestral institutions and orchestral music lovers to try to get to know those things a little better. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. 
So I'm curious as a host of the podcast, <laughs> talking to you, someone of the community. You're here. making me very nervous right now. Go ahead. So what has appealed to you about the podcast, having listened to the first couple of seasons? Well, I, I think it's important because you're bringing in a variety of different people. Uh, not always people that are directly involved uh, with uh, with music or with the symphony, but uh, getting their feel and expressing their feelings, uh, diverse, diversification, um, that there is uh, music out there of so many different styles, so many different types. It's not all long hair or blue hair music. It, it, it's just, and how important it is to uh, in your own way to diversify, to explore other channels uh, beyond yourself. You And you had mentioned earlier when I asked that, the question about how you feel about the, what's happening in the industry about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not just, you know, music, but also diversity, like within our administrations mm -hmm. and the people who are playing the music on stage. Um, and we now have mentioned the podcast. Um, but what have you thought about what we've been doing here at the symphony as someone who is a symphony goer? Um, is it, I don't know. We don't get feedback that, I mean, we get feedback internally a lot mm -hmm. of what we're doing. So it's rare to have someone externally who's also has stake in this organization give us feedback about what we've been trying to do with all of these efforts. Uh, I applaud it. In fact, uh, I, I'm delighted at, at how you're trying to explore uh, new fields, new ranges of things. Uh, you, you know, you have the message, you have the motive and the message of what you're trying to do. The the um, the leap of faith is is how do we get the people to respond to all of that uh, going out there? Uh, I think uh, many of the younger people uh, feel uh, isolated, not not from anything you're doing, but the the very fact that they have been sort of trained to stay in a box. Mm -hmm. They're they're not encouraged to explore, not encouraged to step out of line a little bit. And uh, I think that is the uh, great disadvantage. The, the, the electronics uh, boom and, and the, the cell phones and Facebook and all of these things keep them so occupied with um, the, these vain amusements. Um, and, and that's what you're fighting up against. You're fighting up against a, a technological revolution that's just driving people. It's not driving people away. It's just closing their minds down as to the, the things that are out there. So another thing that on the other side of the age spectrum mm -hmm. for us be careful is that well <laughs> no all i was going to say that that we see as at least a potential obstacle is a possible negative backlash from the current demographic mm -hmm. of concert goers yeah. mm -hmm. towards our efforts yeah on the podcast and what we were able to put into practice here at the orchestra as far as increasing our diversity, equity, and inclusion. Often, you know, you talk about the dead composers uh, 50, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, uh, and then you introduce this piece that is so different from the context of the rest of the program. Uh, I think sometimes it's a little harder edged than the audience is ready to receive. Um, it, it, it could be a very modern piece, a very abstract piece. Uh, if, okay, for example, my own uh, case here, uh, listening to a Beethoven symphony uh, or Tchaikovsky concerto, and then here is Wham, a piece by a modern composer. 
and it is so uh, different and abstracted from the rest of the concert, and maybe that edge might be softened a little bit. Um, I uh, I have heard pieces uh, in that context that were uh, very hard to absorb, um, and uh, and I don't know how to answer that, but um, to carefully consider uh, what you're bringing in that's new, but that might still have certain elements of the same audience appeal. Right, of course, and and honestly, that that's been particularly a focus of mine as mm -hmm. I've sought out music that I can add to my own personal repertoire mm -hmm. by by female and composers yeah. of color. Yeah. And I think you point out a very important thing that we've realized during all of the seasons of the podcast from very things various guests have said that in general, it, it's not, it may not be that it's by a woman or a composer of color. It's simply that it's something they don't know. Mm -hmm. And we've learned people like, people know what they like and they like what they know. Yeah. And people in general are, have trouble exploring something new, giving mm -hmm. something new a try, even if once they do try it, they're going to love it mm -hmm. ultimately. And I think also there's like a little bit of a misnomer that if it's by a person of color or a woman, it's new, which right. is, um, we have a piece by a person, a black man from the 1700s That's this correct. year. Yeah. 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 So it's, yeah, I think also people, ought, if it's a name, they don't know, they're going to assume it's something new. Um, but also, I mean, this is kind of a little bit of, um, and you know, we've, we've gotten some comments from people saying that by focusing on music by people of color that we're being racist towards white people, which is a sentence that doesn't exist. I, well, like it, it, I can argue that comment is not a valid comment for, yeah. for days and days. Um, but you know, a little bit of that too, which to me was shocking mm -hmm. to hear someone yeah. just feel that way about playing something. I don't know by Florence price, who's amazing and wonderful. And, um, I don't know. It just felt so shocking to me. And granted, I grew up in a, a, a time where diversity has been a part of my life always. And I, I always, these are issues that I've thought about from a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you have any insight into like why people might feel so viscerally towards stuff like this. We live in such a, an age of prejudices mm -hmm. and, and so many things are rather than being uh, generalized and softened, they're, they're being exaggerated. And, and it's uh, it's getting worse rather than getting better at this time. Um, and um, uh, when you know, looking at the, the, the programs that you showed me about uh, Amy Beach, this wonderful woman uh, suppressed in her life because her husband didn't want her to compose music. Um, Florence Price, uh, who wrote these incredible symphonies and, and other pieces, and she was involved very much in um, the gospel music, things of that sort, um, that um, uh, tr trying to bring this information out to the general audience. And, you know, perhaps another uh, innovation might be to give an in-context pre-concert uh, pre lecture uh before you play the piece uh, in front of the audience, have somebody come out and talk about it. Can you imagine a black person coming out and talking about Florence Price to the audience right before that piece is played and bring it home? Um, 
I think that would, you know, be remarkable. Uh, I know I'd pay attention to something like that. Well, we'll have Quinn Mason here this season, and this will come out after that concert has already happened. Um, But, you know, Quinn's a young black man. He's 25, um, and he's going to be here to talk all about his music, which is really wonderful. I love his stuff. Um, but, and then we'll have Rick Robinson later to talk about his music. Mm-hmm. And he used to be a bassist in the Canton Symphony and oh, well, Detroit I, Symphony. And, well, he was here too. He was here and then he was at Detroit and, um, he's wonderful. And, um, yeah, I, I think that that's a really important part what you bring up. There's another, oh, it just reminded me of a quote and I, I, I think it was, um, um, Samuel, uh, I have to be careful that Samuel Coleridge Taylor s- s- yeah, the, one is a poet and one is you are name correct. Reversed. Samuel Coleridge yeah. Taylor. Taylor. Yes, yeah. okay. you are correct. But I believe he was the one who made the remark that uh, what do people expect of him as a com- as a black man or as a composer? Is he supposed to write music that uh, represents his black heritage and prove that he is a black composer, or is he to write music that, that demonstrates that he is not that he can write music? without uh, attaching it to anything, abstract music, mm. uh, or on, on some, uh, like the, the Hiawatha that uh, I think it was uh, Coleridge Taylor composed. Mm-hmm. Um, f- phenomenal thing, you know, great, great piece of music. Um, and I think uh, perhaps if one of the uh, black, black composers were to address the audience uh, while the, just as the piece is going to be played, well, the woman who was just here, yeah, uh, she came out and she talked about her piece a little bit. Right. Okay. Right. That, that was uh, delightful. Yeah. You know, and maybe we need to do more of that when you're introducing a, the new piece. Give it, and for that matter, if it's a short piece, play it over again. Wow, that's a that's a concept that I mean, died a long time ago. Yeah. By yeah, and large, learning. I, I, you know, as my you know title manager of education i always often think i'm like our concerts are educational even though they're not an educational concert necessarily um and so um reminding the audience that they're allowed to be learning and they should be learning i think is really interesting of a concept um and this year we've our conversation series Mm -hmm. that we do we've moved it to try to be a more accessible time to younger people Mm -hmm. so that they can come and participate and um are you know where a lot of our guests for those who are speakers are composers whose music mm-hmm. will be on the concert um so we're hoping people take advantage of that this year how how effective have we been in terms of um using the people who teach at the universities uh right here in our community um because i've always had an axe to grind with some of them that when I asked them, well, what did you happen to go to the concert for the can? And say, oh, I couldn't go because I had something to do. You know, um, it, that uh, we need to use them in some way to make it essential to their students that, yeah. that they come to the concert, uh, yeah. give them tickets. Uh, you know, I, I bet I could get a half a dozen of my students to come just by handing them tickets and say, damn yeah. well, better be there. <laughs> well, it's interesting because our, our t- tickets are free for for okay. college students if they just show up at the concert yeah. um and we don't see a lot of people utilize that and um you know we're working on trying to get more it's that's always the battle of trying to get more but butts and so, seats it's so interesting because when i was in college 
I would take the Amtrak to Boston on a well, Saturday night to hear the Boston well, you're Symphony also play a play Mahler. Matthew Jenkins or Shevitz and most students. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I would bring yeah. friends. Yeah. I would and everybody. I had this whole cohort that was thrilled to do it. Well, uh, I'm thinking that some of the teachers, if uh, uh, having a handful of tickets, not only invite their students to come down, but like if it were me, what I would do is I would announce to my students that uh, I want, whoever wants to go down to the symphony, I'll get tickets for you, but I'm going to meet you there afterwards and maybe show you around a little bit. Uh, or, or, or have some opportunity for them to get closer to the orchestra and all of that and just be there. Um, maybe uh, share a can of pop or something with them uh, and take them aside and just, you know, treat them like my guests at the symphony and uh, if, see if that is meaningful. See if they get their response to that. Maybe some of the other teachers could do the same thing. Uh, and I, I would do that. Yeah, I think it's that the a lot of th like intergenerational um learning and, and collaboration and community making is something that is um not super common mm -hmm. um yeah. I, I think it's it's, it's a two-way street a lot of young people think that old people are weird and they don't want to hang out with them and a lot of old people are like those young kids they're yeah. they don't know anything yeah. they don't, you i know, already it's, find myself uh, thinking about okay that, about matthew generations <laughs> below me but and, and <laughs> one thing that i as someone who works with kids a lot um this generation the young very young ones are the most global generation we've mm -hmm. ever had and they are have been in the know about mm -hmm. stuff for a very long time. So there is a ton that we can learn from them. And I find mm -hmm. myself learning from the kiddos at Youth Symphony all of the time, even though I'm not that much older than them. And it's it's really interesting to me how, what you just said of that going to like Rotary and Kiwanis, that could be a really good place for us to say like, hey, the symphony is a space for you, but it's also a space we're trying to make for more people so yeah. it can survive for a really long time. Here is why we need more black people on the stage. Here is why our boards need more diversity. Here's why you should be striving to make yeah. friends with people who don't look like you. Yeah. Um, and that has felt, I mean, we, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but we did like a board diversity exercise and we've discovered the way that most board members find their way onto a board is because someone who was already on the board asked them to be on the board. Okay. And people on our board or on most boards tend to only know people who are similar to them. Mm -hmm. So Which how is just true of people. It's true of people. It's true, it's of, true of people. Yeah. So what we talked about at the very beginning, this about culture and learning more about other types of culture and other types of people, that is such a key, I think, to diversifying everything, right? Because if we yeah. don't strive as the the what is typical of symphony right now to diversify who mm -hmm. we know and what we love, then as you said earlier, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, when we have brought students from Japan to, to uh, Kent, for example, um, and, and I'm thinking of China too, uh, the students, the American students, almost uh, didn't pay much attention, wouldn't engage with them. Wouldn't it, first of all, there was a language barrier, but who cares about a language barrier? You know, you, you talk and they, you hear them talk and you make fun of each other's laughter, their, the, the way they speak and all of that. And you have a great time with them and you try their food and uh, a wonderful exchange. Uh, in situations where we have been, where there has been a language barrier, 
um, we broke it down. We, you didn't have to speak the foreign language. You know, the food was there, and we would mm -hmm. ask, what is this? And, they would, uh, and it was great fun. Uh, but so many young people are not unwilling to make that leap. Yeah. What fun that is. Yeah, and I think um, COVID has played a little bit yeah. of a part in that. Yeah. Um, especially, and this is... I, there, I don't think there's been enough research done on this for me to be able to say anything like specific, but um, students, young students who have spent COVID um, in their middle school or mm -hmm. late elementary middle school years yeah. or early high school even are having trouble talking to people because they're, they've been used to being kind of alone for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so like in our, not so much in our advanced orchestra, but in our middle group during break, Oh my gosh. I said I one day, I oh, said, this is the quietest, quietest break. orchestra break I've I, ever heard in my career. Matthew and I like walked around and I was like, hi, hello, let's talk to each other. And I think a lot of that has to do with COVID. But, you know, to your point yeah. of, 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 young, of young people maybe not wanting to explore, I think they just do it in a different way now. Mm -hmm. And so how can we... Um, embrace how they learn and how they engage yeah. with the world and bring them into some new stuff. I mean, you know, I don't understand. I mean, I, TikTok is a thing and I don't understand it, but it's, I think could be a really good mm -hmm. tool to use if we can try to understand them a little bit better and then they'll be more inclined. It's like, oh, they're respecting what I like. Maybe then I'll come in and join and yeah. try new things. There's a problem there, but the students don't know that there is a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, the isolationism uh, is, is something that they can't fathom, and they don't yeah. really know how to break yeah. out of it. There's an article I think um, in a, a publication we just got called I think it's called Brain and Mind, and it's a neurological or a, um, society, medical professionals that are discussing issues that I think deal with problems like that. Uh, what is happening to the minds mm -hmm. of people today? Uh, closing down, uh, afraid to go out, you know. Um, and I think that you're right about that. That's part of the uh, the issue, the concern. Yeah. And you know, it, 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 we we talk we've been talking already today about it's hard to change older people's mm -hmm. minds, yeah. and younger people, in theory, are just more that they're they neural they have more neural plasticity. They're yeah. still more able to change. The, mm -hmm. their mindset and if even young if younger people already are having trouble being open to things mm -hmm. just imagine in 40 50 years that generation is going to have even more trouble than yeah. than any we've seen before the, the um the thing in my uh experience with students uh, is finding uh, ways of breaking them out of the mold that they're in day after day after day. Uh, and uh, for instance, most students do not have any tactile experiences. They have no, they read books, they write papers, things of that sort. But if you pull them out to do something very, very, very different, at first they think, you know, what, what the heck's going on here? And then they jump into it. They, they relish it. Uh, when we were doing this little project at Walsh, uh, recently, we uh, the students came into this session that I was doing on geometry, geometric construction. Um, they were all sitting like 
like I was going to talk to them and, and give them a lesson. And I said, no, we're not going to talk. You're going to get down on the floor and start putting these things together. And we've got a job to do. And we've got two hours in which to build all of these things. So let's get busy. <laughs> they were out of their seats in a flash and were cutting tape and pushing pieces of cardboard around. And uh, it, the students that otherwise would not be interacting are interacting. And uh, it, it was a maze of activity. And I kept warning them. We're up against deadline. Let's go, you guys. And we finished all the projects. And um, we made friends. And several of the kids wanted to know what we could do next and, you know, th that kind of a thing. So um, I think more activities like that, like bringing them in, how can we do this to maybe uh, bring them in and, uh, uh, I don't know, get get them to play some instruments or something like that. Or if the... Uh, the composer was very interested in music education, and he came up with some phenomenal ideas. Um, that he created very simple musical tunes that the kids could learn, like on a xylophone or something like that, uh, and and getting them more directly involved in the medium. But um, uh, I I think things like that certainly would help. Um, yeah, it's 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 a tough job. It's yeah. a, it's a yeah. tough a lot of obstacles there. Um, well, MJ, I, the, a lot of, I think, um, you have probably a lot of things, you obviously read a lot and you learn a lot and you're a lifelong learner. Um, so part of what we're doing in this podcast as well is trying to get the listeners to dive deeper into mm -hmm. other things and to learn for themselves. And so I'm wondering if you might have a recommendation of something our listeners could either watch or listen to or read that you think could be helpful to them in learning about um, different types of music or so, just something that you think that would interest them. And in it doesn't have to. It be doesn't music. have to be music. Just, just opening minds. Yeah. Something you have been consuming, maybe for yourself lately, that's been that's spoken to you in a particular way. Yeah. Wow. Let me think about that a moment. We don't have much time though. Um, Everybody talks about reading in, in Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. Nobody reads Marcel Proust anymore. <laughs> but I decided at the beginning of one year that I was going to read uh, In Search of uh, Seven Volumes. Oh my and God. I thought, oh my God. And by the end of December of the year that I started it in January, I got to the last book and finished it. And it was like uh, somebody had died in my family because I knew all these characters and now it was all over. The, the experience, yeah. uh, I was, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. A good book will do that. Yeah. Uh, and especially the TV show will do that too. something yeah. long. Because yeah, long form stuff like that. I spent the fall of 2018, really from September through mid-December, reading The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay. And the characters yeah. lived with me every uh -huh. day. Yeah. And when it was over... I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss these characters. The same when I spent in college eight days watching Wagner's Ring Cycle Bingo. a little bit each day. Yeah. And the light motifs are, were just swimming around in my head every day for eight days. And when it was over, it was like, oh well, my gosh. When you have heard it enough times, and I, I had a vast experience with that with Rachel Schneider, uh, who had a long history mm -hmm. with the Canton uh, Symphony, and she went to... Uh, uh, opera productions of that around the world. Uh, but 
when you have listened to that over and over and over again and you think, how could anybody go through four operas like this in 19 hours or something like Ugh, that? It's a lot. But when you appreciate all the light motifs and you get to the end of the very last one and the last theme, the, the opera ends on a theme, not on a big whatever. It ends on the love's redemption theme. And you hear that, dee, da, da, dee, da, 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 da. and you say, love will rescue everything, you know. And it's like Wagner saying, this is not as tragic as you think. There is a wonderful ending to this. And it is that theme that throws you into a, a euphoria that uh, you've experienced all this. And now it's concluded, it's wrapped up. And uh, my God, it's an experience that stays with you, you know. So... Uh, just a couple more questions for you here. So obviously we've talked a little bit today, and as, as you know, we are featuring women and composers of mm -hmm. color on every concert yes. of our Masterwork series this year. And we have now a couple of black people on our board, mm -hmm. which ha is, we haven't had for some time. We're doing a few things incrementally, but we know that just a few things here and there isn't going to create the change that we want. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, what, what sort of changes do you want to see from the symphony to more move us toward a more equitable and diverse future? Well, continue to do what you're doing right now. You know, you're, you're sort of at the bottom of a, a very uh, rather long ladder. And I think uh, the, the continuation uh, of doing that is, uh, is a, the correct progress to take. Um, helping to find other ways to draw more of that audience in and, of course, retraining the group of people that you already have in the audience that, uh, to, to, to accept these things. Um, I know a lot of the, the older people in the symphony, <clears throat> and I know their their issues i i can remember somebody in the symphony i don't know if he's still around but he said uh, he would continue to like the canton symphony as long as they didn't do any 20th century music <laughs> I, well the you know, first concert of this like... year was entirely 20th century music in the first half yeah. so <laughs> <clears throat> but imagine saying something like that yeah. um but uh, I, I think uh, one of the ideas is that when you do have these people, let the composer have a chance to speak to the audience and justify the piece or rationalize the piece. And uh, in every instance, when it's a new piece, and if it's like six or seven minutes long, I think if, if you're talking about your current audience and the way to get these things through to them is to let the composer speak to the audience. I always pitch to my students uh, that there's a concert of the Canton Symphony coming coming up. If you have a chance to go, yeah. go. But maybe this time, next time, I'll just say, I'll give you the tickets to go, or their tickets will be yeah. there for you, or I'll meet you there. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe buy you a cup of coffee or something, take yeah. you into the, uh, 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 the, the hall um, uh, to encourage them to come. And I do have several students that are very uh, good, very impressionable, so it could work. <laughs> yeah. I know, uh, you know, this is maybe testing your your knowledge really quickly, but we Matthew's mentioned, we've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, every concert has a, a, a piece by a person of color or mm -hmm. a woman or both. Um, is there one of those pieces uh, by a black composer or, woman of, or women or people of color um, on our season that you're particularly excited for that maybe you haven't heard before? Uh, I... 
I think there are a number of pieces. Uh, uh, I've heard uh, the, the Price piece. I know Amy Beach's work. Um, who else? Name somebody that... Uh, yeah, you can help so, us. So, uh, yeah, in January, Jesse Montgomery oh, yeah. will be played for the first time at the Canton Symphony. Uh, we mentioned Quinn Mason mm -hmm. next month. Rick Robinson. <clears throat> Rick Robinson. See, these are all new to me, yeah. and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Anxious to hear it. You know, as we're wrapping up here today, you know, looking forward, the future of orchestral music, at the future of the industry, mm -hmm. um, what do you hope for? And, and maybe what do you say to people who say it's not relevant anymore? It's dying out. What do you, what do you, what do you hope for the future and hope that people see in it as we move forward? I, uh, I would uh, be very um, sad to lose uh, the, the, any symphony orchestra. A number of symphony orchestras have, have closed down, uh, and I think that's a great tragedy. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, we just have to work very, very hard to continue building audiences because uh, I, I can't live without orchestral music uh, or any kind of symphonic music, chamber music, all of these, because uh, comparing it you know, with popular music, Popular music uh, is sort of like the, the, a quick shot. You can enjoy it, and but it, it's up at the moment. It's just purely of the moment. But uh, the the thing about uh, this kind of music, it can take you into moods and, and states of mind, uh, realms. It opens up the, the horizon of uh, uh, not just your country, but other countries, uh, music of other nations, other times, other composers. It's just a fabulous experience of life, uh, and and as as you get older and older, you start realizing just how important that that music is in your life because it's something you can always go to, and it's like the you know it's like the little stuffed doll that you can hold on to when you go to bed. It's like a great novel, you know. You you labor through it for a long time, and you just do wonderful things, and and when you get to the end of it, you're sorry it's over, and you want to start back at page yeah. one. Before we let you go, any last thoughts about how we orchestrate change? Continue doing everything as well as you have been doing it. Keep up the spirit. Don't lose your enthusiasm. Every opportunity that you can get out there to talk about it and promote it, uh, don't wait for an audience. Create an audience. Uh, and, and call on people who have, have the skills to help you in some way, too. There, there are people out there in the audience that, that would love to, um, uh, and I can think of a half a dozen people who would love to have opportunities to talk about music and uh, um, go places and, and do presentations to, to promote music. MJ Albacetti, it's been such a pleasure having you in here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm not sure I fully answered all your questions or satisfied your, oh, your no. demands, but uh, it, uh, it certainly has been very, very pleasant. And it'll give me an opportunity to do a lot of thinking about the, the questions you've asked and um, do whatever I can on my part to resolve them. M.J. Albacetti, retired executive director of the Canton Museum of Art and lifelong classical music fan and longtime subscriber here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Thank you. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. 
Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.